Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. This didn't stop Bakken, however, from connecting himself and his blood to Washington's role in securing American independence. I mean, he sort of forces himself into the story. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee discussing one English lord's obsession with William Wallace and George Washington. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the Small Battle series, with two new releases, The Battle of Musgrove's Mill, 1782, by John Buchanan, and The Battle of Harlem Heights, 1776, by David Price. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Sean David McGee, and he's discussing Lord Buchan, a member of the English aristocracy with a unique fascination with American independence. You know, when we talk about revolutionaries throughout history, William Wallace's name always seems to come up. Uh, And certainly that's probably in the modern era because of the movie Braveheart. Now, never mind, it was one of the most historically inaccurate films ever made. It's still a great movie. It's just a fantasy. At any rate, William Wallace captivates our imagination for the same reason that George Washington captivated the imaginations of many people in Europe in the 18th century. It was this idea of bucking the trend, of being an extraordinarily selfless person at a time when their country needed them the most. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Sean David McGee. Sean David McGee, thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Brady, for again inviting me back on. Uh, It's always a pleasure, and I always look forward to discussing my work. Sean, you've been on the show before. Remind us about your background. Uh, I'm a professional educator and adjunct professor of history in the Philadelphia metropolitan area. I received my master's degree in American history from Rutgers University and my PhD from Temple University. And my main areas of interest are generally the politics of the American Revolution and the politics of the early national period. And if you'll permit me a moment of shameless self-promotion, my first book, No Longer Subject of the British King, is scheduled for release by West Home Publishing in 2024, uh, which explores political identity formation through voluntary acts of sacrifice you know, during the you know, gathering of the First Continental Congress. And uh, also, Brady, I-, I would like to add that your new book, The Whiskey Rebellion, is outstanding. Um, uh, years ago, I read Tom Slaughter's Whiskey Rebellion, which is also great, but some of the incidents that you draw into your narrative are chilling, and I think just really further illustrate the brutal and ungovernable nature of the West during the early Republic. And some of those incidents, like with Robert Johnson and John Connor, are, are horrifying. I don't, I don't think even most students of this period appreciate the extent to which violence was infused with, the, with political expression. So I just wanted to commend you for an outstanding contribution and recommend to listeners your book, The Whiskey Rebellion, A Distilled History of an American Crisis. Oh, well, thank you, and congratulations on your book, Sean. Thank you. What first drew your interest into this topic? <clears throat> so I stumbled upon this story while researching another project. It was actually the, the last paper that I published for the Journal of the American Revolution. Um, I have seven years worth, uh, several years' worth of the Gazette of the United States and the National Gazette, so I, I read through those papers regularly. 
Uh, and one story caught my eye. And, you know, as you know, and, and I'm sure many of our listeners know, uh, 18th century newspapers, they don't have like modern headlines. So you really have to invest the time and, and read through everything. And just, you know, by luck, uh, the, the January 4th, 1792 edition of the Gazette of the United States reported that a Scottish painter named Archibald Robertson uh, arrived at Philadelphia to present Washington with a, a box. Uh, and the article reads, it, it's, he describes it as an elegantly mounted box with silver and made of the celebrated oak tree that sheltered the Washington of Scotland, the brave and patriotic Sir William Wallace, after his defeat at the Battle of Falkirk. Now, this short article goes on to reveal that the Goldsmiths Company of Edinburgh crafted the box and presented it to, to, uh, as a gift to this character, David Stuart Erskine, 11th Earl of Barkin. And the, the paper reports that the inscription on the box dated to 1782. Uh, Robertson's papers, the artist's papers, however, claim the engraving actually read 1791. Uh, I next checked the National Gazette around the same time, and I discovered a similar article from the January 4th edition. Now, I made note of this, and you know, I think as, as most historians do, I filed it away in my investigate this later folder and continued the research that I was actually engaged in at the time. Tell us about the Earl of Buchan. What do we know about his life? So, David Stuart Erskine is generally viewed as an eccentric Scottish intellectual. And depending on who you read, you know, some scholars cast him off as an arrogant or privileged or even opinionated aristocrat. Uh, others like James Gordon Lamb and Ronald Kant are more sympathetic. Um, Bakken's parents educated him at home. Uh, he gained a good command of Latin and English. His earldom dates back to the late 15th century, I think 14, I think 1469 or 1468. And his family moved among the most elite Scottish circles for centuries. Uh, he attended three universities and was actually a student of Adam Smith, the Adam Smith of the Wealth of Nations fame. Uh, under Smith, he studied politics and law. He was also attracted to drawing and printing, but his true passion, and Bakken writes this several times throughout his life, was Scottish history. Uh, despite being well-connected, this passion, I, I, I think more than anything else, sort of steered his life. Uh, he's introduced to the majesty of court and the person of King George II. But Bakken writes of this experience that, you know, that the, the English court was dull and it, and it disgusted him greatly, something like that. Uh, he obtained a commission for the 32nd Regiment of Foot. He turned down an ambassadorship to Madrid. I mean, he, lead, he leads some kind of fascinating life. Um, after tragically losing both his father and his older brother, he's elevated to 11th Earl of Bakken. Uh, he, it seems pretty clear that he supported the Hanoverian line, but he dangerously, I think, associated himself with John Wilkes and the Liberty Movement. Uh, he was a committed Whig, openly supported the American colonies throughout the crisis period, and criticized what he labeled as Parliament's foolish and oppressive conduct toward, toward the colonies. Uh, he also regularly recommended like Scottish academics for university appointments in, the Amer in America, but I think his most lasting comment contribution came in 1780. Uh, he was really concerned that there was no regular society that promoted or looked into the Scottish past. And so he formed the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland with other like-minded intellectuals, where he hoped to catalog and research like relics and remains and, and lost Scottish customs. Uh, he's, 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 like an, he's like an archaeologist or, or, or like a cultural anthropologist dedicated to approaching the Scottish past with, I think, uh, and he would probably agree, you know, the, the, but the deference and respect he thought it deserved. 
Sean, what was his fascination with William Wallace? Yeah, this is a good question, and I think really worth drawing out for a moment. Uh, Bakken's fascination with Wallace is perfectly in line with his character. Uh, Wallace reflected for the Earl uh, this universal pursuit of human liberty and dignity. As far as Bakken saw it, William Wallace only sought to liberate Scotland from the cruelty of Edward I. But here's where we need to take notice. It's important, it's important to consider the history that informed Bakken's appreciation of the past. Uh, he had a remarkable grasp on Scottish historiography, and he relied heavily on 16th century historians, Hector Boese, John Major, and most critically, I think, this character named George Buchanan. Now, Boese and Major wrote some of the earliest histories of, of Scotland, and the, Boese wrote a history that was like dependent on folklore and mythology, and, and Major sought to craft a narrative that, that didn't rely on, on folklore and mythology. Uh, what comes to mind, I, I think, like if we were to do a comparative analysis, I think of Herodotus and Thucydides, right? Like Boese is Herodotus, including mythology and, and divinity and that sort of thing. And, and Major is like Thucydides trying to, to, to read his narrative of that. But Buchanan, Buchanan's a little different. Uh, this character, Buchanan, uh, his history is also a political doctrine. Uh, Buchanan argued that all political power derived from the people and that any king was bound to adhere to the original limits of the power granted to him. And according to Buchanan, at least, once the king broke that boundary, lawful resistance to his tyranny became just. And not only did lawful resistance to his tyranny become just, but the punishment of the king became justified. Uh, so his work, you know, his work was considered so radical that Parliament condemned it in 1584. Uh, uh, James VI later suppresses it. And, you know, the, the University of Oxford actually has two book burnings of it in two separate decades. Wallace, William Wallace effectively embodied what Buchanan taught, and the Earl of, of Bakken absorbed these principles as a young man and admired both Wallace and, and Buchanan deeply. How did this man know George Washington? Yes. So this is this is a pretty, pretty interesting element of this story as well. So the Earl never actually met Washington. Uh, he first, as far as I can tell, he first introduced himself by letter. Uh, and he also delivered to the president what he considered a useful, like a periodical or a magazine, you know, that, that commented on uh, like literature and economics and agriculture, things that Bakken as a gentleman thought that another gentleman would be interested in. Uh, he also wrote a letter of introduction for for the artist Archibald Robertson, and he continued a co correspondence with the president after that. Now, let's draw out a little bit of this Earl's eccentricity, if we can, to further illustrate Bakken's impression of himself. Uh, incredibly, Bakken referred to Washington as his cousin, and he, he claimed some form of like distant kinship with the president. Uh, one scholar commenting on this claim uh, called it about as tangible as the shadow of shade. And another scholar, sort of comically, called the Earl's use of cousin, uh, he claimed that the Earl's use of the word cousin came with a certain elasticity. Uh, Bakken's bold assumption is, is based off of some sketchy guesswork, of course. Uh, this didn't stop Bakken, however, from connecting himself and his blood to Washington's role in securing American independence. I mean, he sort of forces himself into the story. He also has this relationship with Benjamin Franklin, um, and they, they, the, the two of those, the, those two men met at, at some point in, in, in 1759 or, or maybe in the early 1760s. And he tries to rekindle this relationship and he refers to himself as an old acquaintance of Ben Franklin. Now, I didn't include this in the paper, but when Franklin receives the letter, Franklin has to write him back and say, who are you? I, I don't know who you're talking about. So the Earl 
Uh, he's certainly a fascinating character, and, and I think perhaps sometimes inserts himself into a broader narrative um, that maybe rubs some some people the wrong way, for sure. What do you think it was about Wallace's spirit, maybe, that he saw in George Washington? So in Bakken's later years, he referred to Washington as the American Wallace, just as he labeled Wallace the Scottish Washington. Uh, in, in this Earl's historical understanding, one completed the other. And as I drew out in the paper, to Erskine, man's common march moved in one direction. Man moved forward. He, he was a progressive thinker in that respect. He had a, like what we would call today a Whiggish appreciation of history, that like the human experience was a constant triumph over the past. For, for Bakken, Washington succeeded over the same circumstances that Wallace, Wallace had the courage to challenge but lacked the resources to surmount. Um, and I, 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 I outline this in the paper, but it's, it's worth recounting. Wallace, for the Earl, Wallace fought for Scottish independence against an English king, suffered a key betrayal, and received the ultimate punishment. He was, he was brutally executed. Uh, nearly 500 years later, Washington confronted similar circumstances. He fought for American independence against the British king, also suffered a betrayal, but still won. And through that victory, he's offered what Wallace was effectively denied. He was offered the ultimate reward, the sort of near unanimous praise of the American public. Uh, but for the Earl, interestingly enough, uh, the American Wallace had finished what the Scottish Washington had begun some 500 years earlier. Sean, can you talk about his desire to have a, a portrait of George Washington in his possession? So in 1786, the, the Earl had rebuilt his finances to the extent that he was finally able to purchase back an old family estate that had been sold out of the family during a moment of desperation, a place called Driver Gabby. There he plans on retreating from public life and dedicating his time to researching Scotland's past and entertaining like a country gentleman. And he, he, he does continue to research. He, he publishes work usually under a pseudonym. Uh, he publishes a paper called Remarks on the Progress of the Roman Army in Scotland, but he also dedicated his effort to curating what he called his Temple of Caledonian Fame, where he hoped to exhibit likenesses of illustrious and learned Scots. So he wanted to create a space on his property that I, I, it seems to me where, that he was curating a museum of his life's work, right? Curating all of all of the great personalities that he thought either did something great for Scotland uh, or did something great for, for mankind. Um, he hoped to get portraits of James I. He hoped to get portraits of James II. And of course, he hoped to get a portrait of Washington. Uh, his commitment to, to Scotland was serious and his desire to respect the cultural legacy of his, of his homeland really drove him. And he's, I mean, he's, he's a creative thinker. He's sort of an, an eccentric character. Um, and he also seems to be a guy that starts a lot and then, you know, loses interest and then starts something else. So he, I, I feel like he puts a lot of energy into his latest project. And then, you know, he, he, he enjoys various levels of success with them. But the purpose of the Washington likeness was, again, drawing on the Scottish past, uh, drawing on his understanding that Washington was Scottish, and certainly drawing on his understanding that Washington was not only Scottish, but related to him somehow, uh, and curating this space of Scottish greatness that, you know, promoted liberty and dignity for mankind. How does George Washington work with him on achieving this? So this is another really interesting element of this story. Washington appears to have gone out of his way to facilitate this exchange for the Earl. 
when the Goldsmiths Company offered Bakken the Wallace box, they were expressing a deep appreciation for the Earl's service in, I think, dignifying you know Scottish history and cultural heritage. Uh, now it's it's important to note that there was like there's like a cottage industry of items that were being crafted from the quote unquote Wallace tree. So the box in that respect is not unique. It's not the only thing out there that people claimed came from this tree. But Bakken recognized the symbolic importance of the present and asked the goldsmiths if he could give the box to the one man in the world who he actually thought deserved this symbolic gesture. Now, of course, he's he's thinking of Washington. Around the same time, he finds out that Scottish painter Archibald Robertson was persuaded to visit New York. Uh, when the Earl discovers this, he he said he set up a meeting with Robertson and then wrote a letter of introduction for the artist. In the letter, he also asked that Washington sit for a portrait by Robertson. Uh, Robertson later wrote that Bakken hoped to add this picture to his collection of portraits of the most celebrated worthies and liberal principles. Now, here's the interesting part of the story, just from a uh, human interest perspective. When Washington, I mean, sorry, when Robertson finally arrived at Philadelphia, uh, he makes note of his visit with the president. Uh, he recorded just how intimidated he became in Washington's presence. And then he takes takes pains to note that he was comfortable conversing and painting the greatest men in Scotland, but he was in awe of the American president. Uh, and now, you know, if, if for anyone who knows anything about Washington's personality, you know, Washington could be icy sometimes. You know, there, there are accounts of Washington's sort of nasty to some of the artists who he sits for. But Washington, I think, recognized uh, how how vulnerable uh, Robertson felt, and he actually tried making small talk, but he failed to loosen this guy up. Uh, he eventually calls Martha Washington to, to put Robertson at ease, and this fails. So finally, Washington decided that he's going to invite Robertson over for dinner the next day. And we have this really unique account of Robertson writing down that moment where he's in the executive mansion with Washington and his inner circle. And he wrote, he wrote that you know, the president dominated the conversation with all sorts of tales that continually kept the table laughing. I mean, he's these are these sort of interesting, intimate moments that, that we often don't think too much of, or Washington keeping a table of people you know, laughing. Uh, at any rate, this apparently relaxed Robertson enough, and he was able to begin painting the president. He actually, as far as I can tell, he paints Washington three times. And I have to say, I had never seen any of these Robertson portraits before. They're very breezy and light. They're, they're, they're colorful, right? They're, 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 they're not the standard portraits that but that the average student of Washington is used to seeing. So I would encourage any listeners uh, out there to check out the portraits that Archibald Robertson uh, 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 crafted. Sean, how does this story end? Well, I mean, it ends differently for the, for the three main characters involved. Um, my, my purpose in writing the paper was to expose an intellectual landscape that Bakken adhered to. He, like he's able to look at time and space in a very interesting and creative way. Uh, so that w w while writing the paper, that that's what I wanted to get out there. For the purpose of our conversation here, we can just very briefly walk through these three main characters. Robertson completes his end of the deal. He paints the portrait for the Earl's Temple of Caledonian fame. Uh, he ends up staying in New York. He, he recruits his brother from Scotland to come to America and they establish this Columbia Academy of Painting, which lasts for like 30 years. Uh, Robertson writes a few books on technique and theory, and he really enjoys a fruitful life. Uh, Washington 
of course, retires from the presidency in March of 1797, and he goes back to Mount, Washington, Mount Vernon. He brings the Wallace box with him. Um, Bakken asked that Washington, upon his death, leave the box to someone else who embodied the liberal principles that caused the Earl to give Washington the box in the first place. Well, in Washington's will, he dodges that and he just he he bequeaths the the box back to um, back to Bakken. And the Bakken does, I mean, I'm sorry, and the box does find its way back to Dryburg Abbey in 1800, courtesy of British minister Robert Lister. Now for Bakken, he has, his story's not done. Uh, he, he has the box, you know, after Washington gives it back to him. Uh, in 1814, he pays this local sculptor named Johannes Smith to carve this colossus 21 foot, 21 and a half foot statue of William Wallace that rested on this 10 foot pedestal. So for the Earl, at least, he finally had Wallace and Washington together in the same time and space in his Temple of Caledonian fame. Um, it's not exactly a happy ending. When the Earl dies, the whole thing falls apart, of course. Um, he, he bequeaths the box to Washington University. He asks that students who made the greatest contributions to human progress and the genuine liberties of mankind be granted medals. He finally dies in 1829. Now, according to the editors of the Washington Papers, the box was stolen during its transport, transport back to the United States. As, as those editors noted, it may have appeared in a private collection in the 1950s. One of the Journal of the American Revolution's readers commented that it was sold at auction not too long ago. Uh, although that, doc, that, box, I'm sorry, that box was dated 1794. The box in question is from 1791 and has an, a dedication engraved to David Stuart Erskine, 11th Earl of Bakken, by the Goldsmiths Company of Edinburgh. Uh, could the auction item be the box? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But finding the box was never the intention of the paper. The paper, again, as I said at the top of this, really just sought to reveal an intellectual world and like a certain historiographical approach to history that allowed Bakken to connect two revolutionaries, two revolutions, and one relic. How does this article help us understand the American Revolutionary Era better? Yeah, I, I appreciate that question. Uh, and I think, in my judgment, this work further supports the ways in which the rhetoric of the American Revolution reverberated through the Atlantic world. Uh, whatever the revolution's shortcomings on the ground, Jefferson's rhetoric really proved profoundly inspirational for, for many people in the Atlantic world. The mission statement of the New Republic prioritized not only white equality along with life and liberty, but the purpose of the Republican experiment, at least according to the Declaration of Independence, was to embrace individual private pursuits of happiness. No political American was subject to a king. No political American could be compelled to do something they did not want to do, within, within reason, of course. For thinkers like Bakken, this was exactly the point, right? Uh, independence and liberal principles, liberal in the respect that people became liberated from tyranny, liberated from state control, liberated from regulation. Uh, obviously, the framers did not imagine a, like a free-for-all. They imagined some kind of community values that fostered within reason private pursuits of happiness. Now, Wallace fought and died trying to liberate Scotland. Washington fought and secured a liberated America. The principles of the American Revolution, according to men like the Earl of Bakken, were nothing new, nor even were they radical. They were simply the basic principles mankind yearned for, uh, according to Bakken, a political nation whose political architecture guaranteed its citizens liberty, dignity, and respect. Sean David McGee, thanks again. 
Thanks again, Brady. Always a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.